and welcome to Welcome Home Radio. This is Don Scordino, your host on our Valley's most informative real estate talk show. This this hour is being brought to you by the 4,000 members of the Fresno Association of Realtors. And we want to do that so that we can provide our listeners with some really good information that will help you in your real estate decisions. Um, to help us with that, we have two two realtor members today here. They're a little unique in that they are attorneys, real estate attorneys. Uh, so from the law office of Robert C. Abrams, we have Robert Abrams and also Craig Waters. Good morning, both of you. Good morning, Don. All right. So you guys are all prepared like good attorneys. You came here. We have documentation here to review. Um, you're not the typical uh, guest we have. <laughs> like most attorneys, don't we hate uh, trees and other forms of paper, so we try to use them as much as possible before we go anywhere. <laughs> all right. Uh, well, at least you won't be looking at your iPhone all day. Well, that's you, you, You've got some paper here to look at. Um, here's, I think this is a great thing. You guys came with this one, and number one is, what are the biggest controversies between buyers and sellers? So let's dive right into that and, and find out what those are. Give us our, our drama class today. Well, like, go ahead, Craig. <laughs> like anything else, there are a host of problems that you can come across anytime you have any arrangement between a couple of people. But there are a couple of key uh, types of problems or key situations that come up more often than others whenever you have uh, you know, a residential sale between the buyer and the seller. Uh, the first one is non-disclosure, and this is always a problem for a number of reasons. You know, I always tell clients whenever they come in, I had a real job before I became an attorney. I did other things. Um, and I think that like the most of the populace, you know, when we talk about disclosures, most people would think, okay, well, I have to disclose things that are still broken, that are still, you know, a problem, things I haven't fixed. Um, and, and so where I'm going with it is generally there's just kind of a misunderstanding from a regular average person who's not engaged on a regular basis in a real estate transaction, either an attorney or a realtor, not knowing exactly what categorizes as something that has to be disclosed. And of course, we as attorneys, we live in the, the world of you know, Monday morning quarterbacking, you know, 2020 hindsight, all of those things. So we're I looking never back. thought of it like that. But that <laughs> that's a great description. Yeah, because you are looking at things that happened. Right. We get to look at things and say, well, absolutely, you should or should not have done that. But <laughs> for, for, you should not have thrown that pass. <laughs> right. Exactly. How did you not know it was going to hit that person in the eye when the wind blew at 40 miles an hour to the south? Right. Things of that nature. Um, so we get the ability to, to we get the luxury of seeing it that way. But for anybody who's in the transaction, who is in the trenches, a lot of times a lot comes up and, and usually it's not malicious. Now, sometimes it is, but usually it's not, hey, I'm intentionally not going to tell this person. A lot of times it's, you know what? I, I didn't even think about it. I didn't think about it. I had had that done a couple of years ago. I totally forgot about it. So disclosures and, and I'll let, you know, obviously Bob chime in here too, but I think disclosure still remains one of the top items. And sometimes it's because of a miscommunication. Sometimes it is because of active concealment. But there's just a, a range of issues within even that category that kind of tops the list. Okay. Bob, if I could ask you this, I mean, you always hear the term as is. Sellers want to sell as is. And uh, so is it buyer beware? Well, that's an interesting question, Don, because I think as the uh, – the real estate purchase contract um, states all sales basically are as is, but that does not mean that you have to accept it once you discover something. Um, 
the seller is required to make disclosures of any known uh, item that would materially affect the value or desirability of the property. But the buyer still, there still is a buyer beware after that. Uh, the buyer is responsible for determining anything that they could readily determine about the property. And, and the seller isn't required to disclose certain things that the buyer might be interested in. The seller's not, for instance, the seller's not required to disclose the square footage, but if that's important to the buyer, the buyer needs to determine the square footage on their own, or the zoning for that matter. Who, who says that the seller is not required to disclose square footage? Is there a law or precedent so, uh, you know, that's a good question. The, that's also called a curveball, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, there's a disclosure uh, in the uh, California Association of Real Estate forms that says that the, the seller is on their own. I mean, excuse me, the buyer is on their own in determining square footage. Um, square footage is not necessarily a material fact um, that needs to be disclosed by the seller. I'm not sure if that is a statute. Um, but if the seller does disclose the square footage and it's materially off, they could have some liability. Mm -hmm. And from a practitioner's side, I can say this. I have seen several homes that I've had two or three different appraisals over a, a course of years, and each appraiser will measure it differently. Mm -hmm. so, so now, not materially differently, I have a rental home that I've refinanced a couple of times and, and um, gotten loans on it. So I think I have a total of three appraisals on that over the last 11 years. But all three uh, square footages are different. They're all pretty close. They're all right around 1,850, uh, give or take. But it's funny. You would think, well, the walls aren't moving, so why, why isn't it exact? Quality of the measuring tape, perhaps. Measuring wheel, size of their shoe. <laughs> Whatever happens to be using it. I like that, the size of the shoe. <laughs> you know, my, we're size 12, and it's approximately one foot, so I'll just take walks across my property and decide how we get there. Um, and, and, you know, going to the, to the as-is discussion, one of the things that was a real, wheel, a, a real awakening for me when I started doing this area is that it's one of the few areas, it's not one of the few areas, we're in California, there's lots of these areas, where just the legislator has said, you know, we don't care what you agree to, you know, we're going to have these floors and you're going to have to do these certain things. So we get a lot of people to come in and they say, well, the contract says as is, I put on the napkin that we signed as is, that I'm not going to disclose anything. They signed it, they said that it's okay, that they don't have to disclose things. But California has said, uh, no, you can't waive that. You have to disclose those things. And so whenever the few transactions we get where realtors not involved, we've seen the strangest contracts come in. I've seen an agreement to buy and sell a house for $200,000 on one sheet of paper handwritten that's missing 98% of the material terms, but it has this phrase that says, as is, no disclosures, they take it as they see it kind of a thing. And it's completely, you know, it's not something they can do anything with because disclosures are mandatory for that kind of a property. So it's one of those things where, again, it, it, a lot of it stems from confusion when people aren't informed in the beginning before they get there. And we always try to tell people it's just like medicine. It's a lot better as a preventative measure than it is as a curative measure later you know, mm -hmm. because the process is so much worse after you get through it and the transaction goes through and now lawyers are trying to cure it as opposed to just having the right information and guidance beforehand. 
and you know that on the first day after escrow closes and the new neighbors come over with with the brownies and the flowers and all that they're going to say boy i sure hope those people fix that roof leak <laughs> you can't you, what be, roof leak? i think you'd be surprised i've had a couple of cases where a neighbor comes over and says hey nice to meet you i'm so-and-so uh you need to move your fence because it's on my side of the you know they've got the land between their driveways and there's a fence between the driveways and they'll say by the way i've been fighting with your neighbor for the last five years and now that you're here i hope you're more reasonable and we'll move your fence and the neighbor the new owner will say i have no idea what you're talking about i like that let's talk about fences <laughs> and, and property rights so um because uh, that i that comes up a lot it does it does and in in california just because the fence is in a particular spot does not mean that that's the property line and, and a person doesn't gain or lose any rights because the fence is in the wrong spot. Um, it, people think that because my fence is two feet onto my neighbor's property that I own that extra two feet because I've had it for a period of 20 years or five years or whatever the, the term is and they believe that they have that and the neighbor next door wants the fence moved and they say no you can't and they get into a dispute but in fact uh, the property line is the property line in California and you can't gain a prescriptive right or adverse possession without meeting the qualifications under the law so what are some of those qualifications? Oh, okay well well first is is an adverse possession and and both both prescriptive rights and uh, adverse possession rights require uh, ad, an adverse uh, uh, or a hostile um, possession or use. Uh, the difference between adverse possession and a prescriptive right, or uh, pres prescriptive right is, is a use. An adverse possession is, is possession or uh, we might, we might improperly call it ownership but it's it's actually possessing like if you rent a piece of property you are in possession of that property if you um, are one of a uh, well that's a bad example but but if I uh, have a roadway that that several people use to access a property that's that's a use so a prescriptive use has to be non-exclusive it can't be just one person it has to be multiple people. I think the, the short story behind that is the government says, look, if you, if you truly have utilized this property as your own, and there's a bunch of what we as lawyers call elements, different little check boxes that you have to mark off before the government will allow you to say, okay, that qualifies for that. We, the, the government wants to make sure, okay, one, you're, you're actually utilizing that property as your own, and you're doing it in a manner that whoever actually owns it has, no, has noticed that you are utilizing it inconsistent with their ownership. So, for example... Let's say you go up and you take up this section of property on your neighbor's, you know, your neighbor's parcel, and you've been there for 20 years. You've utilized it for your own. You've built your own house on it. You've put your own driveway in it. You've believed it's to be yours. Your neighbor can obviously see you, and it's, you know, we call it open and notorious. You know, that goes a lot longer than, well, I've hid quietly in this corner of the barn where my neighbor hasn't seen me for the last 20 years and had no reason to know that I was there. So there's a lot of different elements to be able to do that. In California, we have the additional element of, of taxes, um, and it and, and should be no surprise to people in California of death and taxes. California wants its property tax from somebody and wants to make sure it's getting paid. So, mm -hmm. But, yeah, there's a lot of elements there, you know, as Bob was saying, that as far as adverse possession being the first of those ways to uh, 
potentially obtain that. So you can't own that property if you mm -hmm. haven't paid the taxes, and you can't have an easement on that property if it's been exclusive use. I see. <coughs> Excuse me. So the the point here is, as a seller, disclose that. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Be, because the problem will come up. If there's, a, if there's, a, I mean, the form will ask, the forms will ask you if there's any kind of dispute, and of course, I mean, every lawyer can give you a different definition of what dispute means, and I'm sure every person could as well. But the reality is, when you're disclosing, you always err on the side of caution. And if you have a dispute, or if there's been some discussion, or you don't know that it's yours, or whatever the case may be, because even in in, in either of the cases that we're talking about, adverse possession or, um, you know, the uh, the easement version you still have to clear your title. You still have to go through a judicial process to be able to have that to be determined in order to have clean title. Mm -hmm. So the, if there is that dispute, then yeah, it would need to be disclosed. Okay, we do have to go to a commercial break, but stay tuned to Welcome Home Radio, 940 ESPN. Well, welcome back to Welcome Home Radio, where we're all wishing it was September rather than uh, July and 100 and what's it going to be today? 100 and 108. You know what? I'm going to just go on with my day and I'm not going to even pay attention to it. <laughs> I'm not going to let the weather stop me from doing what I was going to do. <laughs> That's right. And besides that, I got to say this about our weather. It's a dry heat, not a humid heat. Man, you go to the East Coast on a hot day, it's miserable. Well, someone with who wears glasses, I can appreciate that because I've been in some very hot, humid situations. You walk out from air conditioning and you have to spend a good 30 seconds standing there before the humidity clears off of your glasses because you can't <laughs> see. So uh, dry heat for me, at least, is very much appreciated. All right. Um, once again, this is Bob Abrams and... Craig Waters, attorneys, and also realtors. They're, they're both licensed. Uh, in fact, Bob was the president of the Fresno Association of Realtor. Realtors, what, two decades ago? Well, I don't know. How long ago? <laughs> <laughs> it's been a while, Bob. <laughs> we now have computers. <laughs> wow. <laughs> no more carbon copied forms. <laughs> Aren't we still using uh, fax machines? That's right. <laughs> Some of us are. All right. So we've been talking about some of the biggest controversies between buyers and sellers, and we could probably spend four hours talking about disclosures and non-disclosures. Um, we talked about fences, and let's talk about trees now. How, how do trees play into this? Well, just like anything else, Don, um, trees cross property lines, and they can cause damage to uh, a neighboring property or interfere with somebody's garden, that sort of thing. The problem is, is a, a tree is almost a protected item. So if a tree um, comes onto your property, either the branches or the roots, mm -hmm. you can trim those. However, if you damage the tree, you have some liability. So there's some interesting things. And, and then again, there are a lot of lawsuits where a neighbor's tree affects my property and causes damage to my property. Who's responsible for that damage? Mm -hmm. And and so there are lawsuits. So so the the key is really in a neighborhood in a neighbor dispute like that is communication and cooperation because 
If you don't have that, then it erupts into a dispute and nobody wins. Mm -hmm. Just the attorneys. That's, well, that's, <laughs> that's what we tell people. We're the only people that win. We try as most as much as possible. We try to com communicate with people so they don't need us. And mm -hmm. and as much as we beg, that doesn't always work. Um, some people think they can fix things themselves. But you know, going back to what Bob was saying about damaging property, um, when you're dealing with a larger parcel or separated family residences, of course, then you've got fence issues and things like that. I've got a, a couple of cases involving HOAs and condominiums where the the lot sizes obviously are much smaller where a tree that wasn't even planted by the owner, the roots come up and damage the um, the foundation of the building next to them. You know, and the HOA says, hey, you know, you need to deal with this tree. We realize that we're the ones that planted it and you, you know, you don't know anything about the tree and all of a sudden you're faced with either a fine or removing the tree. And in such a small confined spaces, the damage can be, you know, amplified many times over as mm -hmm. compared to a, a larger parcel. So. But at the same time, as Bob said, you can't really kill a tree, and you kind of have to decide, do I tear out the whole tree or what have you? And it's really just a question of damages. But it can be a very significant problem. And, you know, I'm going to always say deal with a professional. So even when you're landscaping originally, mm -hmm. deal with a professional. Talk to the nursery. See which trees have the good root structure. So the right tree in the right place adds value to your property. The wrong tree in the wrong place is going to be detrimental. And that's good advice. I think now you can go into almost any hardware store and find a tree with a nice shiny label that tells you what season it goes in or what plants it goes with. But every tree, as you said, has different canopy sizes. They have different root sizes, how far they go out versus how far they go down. And that really is imperative when you're deciding where, how close to your property line, how close to your own buildings, how close to other plants. And it's just like anything else. You really need to talk to somebody who knows what they're doing in that area to find out before you just go dropping something like that. Because you may not have an issue for quite some time, a lot mm -hmm. like a house. You may not find out you even have an issue for years down the road until that tree gets bigger. Mm -hmm. um, what about easements? Tell, tell us, first of all, what is an easement? An easement's the right to use uh, somebody else's property. Um, it could be for access. It could be... Uh, to have a, a, a well in a suburban property. It uh, could be um, uh, right to use a property for some specific uh, activity. I didn't know that. So you could have an easement for a well on someone else's property. I, well, I guess with agreement, anything's possible, right? Well, there are actually there are a lot of uh, suburban properties that have been split over the years and they will have one well that serves both two properties. I see. And so uh, you have to have an easement for the property for the property owner that doesn't own the property where the well is situated. So I think the most common easement that everybody can relate to is PG&E and, and the telephone company uh, have an easement to maybe the back eight feet of your property for uh, their power poles, their lines, and of course you want them because they provide a service. <laughs> and what, they only show up once every 10 years, if that. Until your tree grows into their power <laughs> lines and you get a letter saying, please cut your tree. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> they used to come out and do it for you. We, we also see it a lot up uh, some of the foothill areas where properties have been subdivided over the years and there's a lot of landlocked properties. And uh, this is a larger problem than I ever would have imagined, but there have been a number of cases over the years that I've worked on where 
And it, for the most part, people got along for the last 30 to 40 years. But of course, it's just not the same as it used to be where you could go next door and actually talk to your neighbor about your issues. Now everybody wants to go, you know, throwing stuff at each other, blogging roads, getting attorneys, whatever the case may be. But <clears throat> we see that a lot where properties are landlocked. They, they don't have a way to access the main road and there isn't a city or county road officially that goes to their property. And what they actually have is an easement for a road across their neighbor's property in order to get there. And a host of issues have arisen from time to time where, you know, the neighbors just have finally had enough of one another, so they've decided to take turns blocking each other off so they can't use the road, things of that nature. You know, you're looking at a guy that knowingly bought a landlocked property, but I believe that you buy property, buy land because they're not making anymore, mm. and it'll. I bought it cheap. It, it obviously was price impacted. Um, I bought five acres in Los Angeles County for $3,500. Wow. Yeah. And that was 15 years ago. Um, I'm just holding it until the big one hits and I have beachfront property. <laughs> <laughs> or, or something happens. <laughs> there, a few years ago, I kind of got excited because it's like, God, what do I do with this landlocked property, right? Now, by the way, with uh, Proposition 13, I'm paying $35 a year in taxes, so not bad. Hard to argue with. Yeah, yeah the holding costs are not very high. Um, but I got excited when I got a letter from the high-speed rail, and they wanted to do soil samples. It's like, oh, boy, I'm sitting on a gold mine here. <laughs> I guess not. <laughs> <laughs> Might be a few centuries before you uh, yeah. get to realize that. Yeah, I, I maybe I have, I'll have better luck if... Um, tumbleweed becomes valuable there you go because there's a lot of tumbleweed out there <laughs> um uh, all right so what should buyers and sellers know about the real estate contract a lot of issues with the contract uh, don so just basically starting at the top uh, uh the the amount that they're going to pay and and the closing date i mean the close of escrow is an important issue or can become an important issue because typically a buyer wants to move in at a certain point they if they're living in an apartment or they're selling their house they have to be out of that property you know so they have to give notice or they have to close escrow the seller needs to know when they can go someplace else because they're paying the mortgage on the house that they're selling and if they're buying another one they're going to they need to know when to close escrow there so so the close of escrow is really one of the first uh, important issues on on a uh, contract and and it's important it, you don't just fill in the blank you you really need to sit and think about how soon can I close escrow? And the, the seller has to say, how soon can I move out? How, you know, mm -hmm. those kinds of considerations. Well, and what conditions have to come about before you close the escrow is really important. I know one, I had a guy come to me one time who said, I'm in trouble. He said, I bought a home uh, from a friend and we didn't have realtors involved. It was a private party transaction. Um, He's ready to close the escrow. He spent money on an appraisal. He had already given notice at his apartment. Come to find out, the seller said, well, the tenants are still in there. I still got to give them notice. I didn't want to give them notice until I knew you were going to close escrow. <laughs> well, he had to give them 60-day notice. And, of course, the lender says, no, you got to move in within 30 days. It was a mess. He came to me and said, how do I 
what do I do? One of the benefits of, uh, of course, we're talking about the residential purchase agreement, which is the California Association of Realtors form for offering to buy and sell a one to four residential property. One of the benefits of using a realtor and having access to that form is that form addresses issues that have popped up over years and years and years. The form has been developed as these issues have come up. And as Bob was saying, it's important that you look at those, but it's, it's very important that those things are there on the contract in the first place. You know, we talk about things that you know we explain on a regular basis, they're important, and I know some people look at it, and granted, I'm a lawyer, so words are important, uh, lots of words, the more words, the better, in fact. But when you look at it and it says, okay, this is what we're offering, this is the kind of financing we're using, and, the, and it also has a provision for a, an a interest range all of those things are important. I've had conversations with individuals over the past about the interest rate. Well, why do I need to put, you know, a maximum interest rate? Well, you know, if you can't if you can't get a loan, one of the contingencies in there is the loan contingency, right? So, if you don't put a maximum interest and you go to kick out on the loan contingencies, I can't get a loan, and the other side says you can, but you got you can get one at 14%. And he says, "Well, I don't want a loan at 14%. It's too bad you didn't put a cap on it." Mm-hmm. So, all of those things that mm-hmm. are in there are for the most part in there for a reason and have come about, you know, kind of like warning labels that we all have to, well, none of us read them, but they're there. They've all come to be over a course of however long because of issues that have risen in the past. I sure hope that real estate disclosures don't become like warning labels (laughs) or agreements online, you know, uh, your Google agreement that no one reads. Well, no, obviously you you have to read them and and warnings you also should read. But I will say, and then having been doing this far less than either the two of you, I think that uh, from what I've heard, the RPA, (laughs) the residential purchase agreement and the disclosures, they have grown in size over the last however, you know, because issues pop up, litigation pops up, there are things that we, you know, need to address. And and that's the advantages of having someone who's experienced because they've experienced all of those things over time. (laughs) Most of us would never even think to address half the stuff in there or think that it's going to be a problem. But as I tell people all the time, it's never a problem until it is. Mm -hmm. You know, if you always thought everything was going to be a problem and we're right, you wouldn't need, you know, curative remedies. So it's the advantage of having that. Well, when Don and I first started, I think the uh, real estate purchase contract was a one-page uh, agreement. I'm not that old. It was two. Yes, you are. It was two. <laughs> <laughs> they and, had just gone to two. Okay. And then uh, uh, disclosures weren't an issue back then either. Uh, so What disclosures? There were none. That's right. And, and a lot of the laws are caused by uh, lawsuits uh, over the years. And so... Uh, that's, that's why we have a 10-page contract and all the addendums today. Yeah, a lot of paperwork. But with that, we're going to go to our next commercial break. So stay tuned to Welcome Home Radio 940 on your digital dial. Welcome back to Welcome Home Radio. This is Don Scordino, your host on an 11-year running show. Not bad, huh? I do know, Don. Uh, and here to help us out today, we have realtors and attorneys uh, all in the same people. And that would be Craig Waters and Bob Abrams of the law office of Robert C. Abrams. Yes, Bob Abrams, Robert Abrams, same guy? Uh, you know, I'll answer to either one. Okay. Um, we've been talking about some of the more common disputes between buyers and sellers, and um, I like the words you guys said in the beginning about 
the best way to avoid them is communication and cooperation. That's certainly good because uh, nobody really wins in a dispute. Absolutely not. Yeah. So one of the things that came about probably with English common law from centuries ago was the deposit. You have to make a contract valid. I believe you need to have a earnest money deposit or some consideration to go into an agreement. Would that be correct? Or? That would be correct. Okay. Good. Because I thought, all of a sudden I thought, you know, I overstepped my bounds there. I'm not really sure I know the answer to that one. Um, so what is an earnest money deposit and is there a required amount? Well, there's, I don't believe that there's a required amount. A lot of times we talk about a, an amount that is you know, common in a particular area, things of that nature. There is a maximum amount, though, uh, at least as far as what we can use as you know, what we, we'll talk about this later, assume get into it with liquidated damages. There is a cap when you're dealing with residential one to four properties, that being how much you're allowed to set that at. Um, but really, I think for most people, and it has developed in any kind of negotiation, I imagine most people, you don't want to waste your time talking to somebody who, who actually isn't interested, who doesn't have the ability to purchase the property or is just kind of shopping or what have you. And the earnest money deposit really helps kind of solidify that a person is really interested in it. And that leads to a couple of you know potential problems that people try to solve and they say, okay, well, if that's the case, then um, you know I want to be able to have a non-refundable deposit and that way I really know that they're serious because I'm going to be taking my mark property off the market, I'm not going to be selling it. And I want to be able to have some kind of something at the end of this if it doesn't go through. But yeah, I think that the earnest money deposit and whatever name it's been called, and it's in a number of different types of business transaction, has been around for a long time and probably will be so. Um, but it's something that has developed a lot of times out of necessity, but also something that the a seller will want in order to help protect themselves. Yeah, the deposit really isn't the consideration for the, the contract. It is, uh, it, it is a good faith... Uh, deposit, if you will, uh, towards completing the contract. The consideration basically is that the the, the agreement is I'm going to buy and you're going to sell, and then the consideration is the money I'm going to pay to buy. So from a practitioner's standpoint, sure, you could put a $1 earnest money deposit down. That would be fine. But as a seller, you might think, well, you know, if they decide, if they change their mind or the wind blows a different direction, they're not going to even bother to call for that $1. So it's got to be substantial enough to where there's good faith. Well, yeah, there's no legal requirement uh, as, as far as the size of the deposit. But if I'm selling a piece of property, I want to know that, that a buyer at least has the wherewithal to get a loan and, and make a down payment. And so that's, I think, what what uh, realtors look at and advise their clients uh, and, and sellers look at in terms of how much deposit is enough. Mm -hmm. It's also, from a once again, from selling real estate, I can tell you this recently happened where some people came to me with a, a pre-approval letter from an out-of-town lender, so I, did, I didn't know them. It was a weekend. They wanted to make an offer on a property, and so I accommodated them. I mean, we started to draw it up, and it's like, okay, typically for this price range, you're going to see 2500 to 5000 for a deposit. Um, can, how much lower can we go? I said, well, what do we have to go to? 
when they got it down to $500 and that would have been taking advantage of the weekend because they could get two different withdrawals out of the ATM machine. It's like, okay, we've got more of an issue here than how much of a <laughs> deposit. They're, they were cash poor. Mm-hmm. And so I said, let's wait until Monday. Let's check with your lender because I wanted to say, where did you come up with this pre-approval letter from? They and Because the, they weren't going to have money to pay for the appraisal nor the home oh, inspections. So, uh, yeah. So that deposit helps make or break uh, a transaction. It also helps keep things moving and helps keep people honest during the transaction. Mm-hmm. As a realtor, we use things, you know, we use the notice to perform if someone's not doing the things they're contractually obligated to. And, of course, having the recourse that if they do breach the agreement, you know, it provides a more immediate recourse than saying, okay, well, the next thing I'm going to do if I don't have liquidated damages, I'm going to go hire an attorney and for the next however long pursue you for that breach of contract. So having the deposit and in turn those liquidated damages, if it's agreed to, provide a much quicker remedy in the event that they don't do what they say they're going to do and follow through. So let's say there's a $5,000 earnest money deposit in escrow. You got a 45-day escrow. Um, a f- one week into it, the buyer says, uh, I need to cancel. Who keeps that deposit? <laughs> it depends, Don. <laughs> the, the and that's why attorney, we have attorneys. That's correct. Because it depends. It depends. <laughs> depends on a lot of factors. First of all, does the buyer have the right to cancel uh, at that point in time? And <clears throat> that that is based on the contractual agreements that uh, the contingencies that are in there, uh, walkaway provisions that might be in there. But the right to keep a deposit is not something that uh, the seller automatically has. That, that You could have a liquidated damages clause. The, the, first of all, the deposit is never non-refundable. As Craig said, there's a liquidated damages clause that could be operative in a contract if it's initiated by both parties. But that liquidated damages uh, provision on residential property can can be a maximum of 3% of the purchase price. And it's not automatic. The contract itself calls for the buyer and seller to sign an agreement that it can be released to the seller. And if they don't sign it, then they're going to end up in mediation or arbitration or a lawsuit to determine who gets that deposit. Yeah, it's, as Bob said, it, it really depends because there are some contingencies, and the contingencies, you know, we kind of describe to people as a switch, and once that contingency is completed, then that switch is flipped and that contract is active. And so there are three main ones that we talk about in the residential purchase agreement. We have the condition of the property that you have to accept. We have the loan contingency, and we have the appraisal contingency. Going to the condition of the property, some people, you know, and it's not entirely wrong, but... Some people will say under that contingency, well, that means I can cancel for any reason that I want. It's not technically accurate. You could give a bad reason that doesn't fit within there, but you could also give a reason that fits within that agreement and still get out of that contingency. But as long as you're within that period of time, then that wouldn't be that deposit wouldn't would be returnable. As Bob said, regardless of whether the parties have quote unquote agreed for it to be, you know, non-refundable under any sense, under any circumstances, it doesn't matter. It, the law says you can't have that kind of provision. That's why we have the liquidated damages. But you have to get past those other elements first. 
one of the other things that could trigger it is, as a seller, you have an obligation to turn over those statutory disclosures So we talked about earlier, that transfer disclosure statement, the TDS. If you don't, when you finally turn that over, there is a three-day, by law, period of rescission that the buyer can rescind without penalty. So again, it really depends on where the rest of the documents are at. That's one of the things that, you know, realtors keep that transaction moving along because there's a lot of dates, there's a lot of timers to keep their eye on that your regular person wouldn't say, I would have no idea that those are all things that need to have happen. I like some of the analogies you used because um, it is like a switch. Um, after 17 days and the contingency or the inspection period is up, somebody needs to go flip that switch. Right. Yeah. You, you need to either tell them, look, you need to either flip the switch or go home and so I can sell it to somebody else and, and or you need to flip, you know, or we move forward and go on without it. Or if nobody touches the switch, does it, that contingency stay in place? It stays on. It stays on. Now, and that's something that's changed over the years, I is my understanding. But yeah, if you don't, if it doesn't get pressed, if you're not following the timers, you don't go to the other side and say, hey, you know, you got your notice to perform, you either do this or we're out of here, then it will stay live. Yeah, way, way back in the old days, you know, when Bob started, uh, <laughs> uh, it, it was a, um, what was it called? A passive, passive passive contingency. So that after 17 days, it automatically, the switch was flipped. Mm -hmm. It was no longer a contingency. Now it's an active contingency. Somebody has to go and either the seller has to make you um, remove it or you need to uh, remove it So, as a buyer. With that, we're going to our commercial break, but stay tuned to Welcome Home Radio 940 ESPN. This is Don Scordino, your host of Welcome Home Radio. Welcome back. And we are talking here with Bob Abrams and Craig Craig Waters of the Robert C. Abrams Law Group. I think that's the law office of Robert C. Abrams. <laughs> <laughs> Does it matter? <laughs> They'll but, find us. Yeah. Uh, located here in Fresno. Corner of Barstow and Palm, right across from Bullard High. All right. Um, let's talk about when th there's mediation and arbitration and litigation, three totally different things. When should a buyer or seller, or when should anybody use them? If you're using the uh, California Association of Realtors form, mediation is always required if you want to be eligible for attorney's fees with a couple of uh, small exceptions. Uh, but mediation, uh, first discussion, communication. And mediation is the next step, really, and it's a good step. It's, an, it's a voluntary uh, uh, meeting. Uh, different mediators handle the, the mediations differently, but it's an opportunity for the buyer and seller to come to an agreement. What you need to understand, or what a buyer and seller needs to understand when they go into a mediation, nobody should walk away 100% happy because everybody has to give a little bit. Mm -hmm. And so mediation is really the... the best first step. It's it's not a legal requirement, but it's certainly uh, a good step to take. Now, in the Fresno Superior Court, uh, some sort of alternative dispute resolution such as mediation is required prior to uh, actually having a trial on a matter. Mm -hmm. there, are, and there are some other advantages. I mean, with mediation, 
And the key distinction between mediation and arbitration, as you mentioned earlier, is that it's non-binding. So one of the advantages of having a mediator is that a mediator is there to help the parties kind of negotiate, come to a resolution, but in the end, if the parties don't like it, then they can decide to walk away. And so one of the concerns I get from clients is saying, well, look, I don't mind getting into this and mediating, but what if I don't like what he has to say? What if I don't think that it's fair? What if I don't think that it's, you know, enter reason X? They have the opportunity to say no. But for the most part, mediation has a very good chance of success so long as the parties are coming in with the mindset that Bob just described, which is it is a settlement and everybody's giving up a little something. And as I tell clients, litigation is a long process, it's expensive, it's painful, and, and most people don't have to operate on a day-to-day -day basis like they would during litigation. And so being able to settle, giving up something in, in their mind is, is a trade-off, not having to go through all of that. Just like a communication with a neighbor, it might be hard. You may not want to go talk to that neighbor. You might be angry with them. You might be embarrassed, whatever the case may be. And so you're going to suffer some sort of, I guess, internal conflict going to talking to that neighbor. And some people avoid that. And so we end up getting into these big blown situations. But you get past that. You go talk to the neighbor. You work out, hopefully, the details. Mediation is kind of like that next step. You know, you don't have, what was the same Wilson from the Home Improvement Show to be able to, to kind of be that buffer between you. So you go find someone called a mediator to kind of help with that process. So, so mediation, if you come to an agreement, it is binding. Uh, mm -hmm. That agreement is binding. It's signed and sealed and delivered. It's enforceable. Nothing that is communicated in the course of the mediation is discoverable. It can't be used as evidence against you later. So you can say things that, that uh, uh, you couldn't normally uh, say about the transaction. Mm -hmm. um, the next step then would be uh, either arbitration or uh, litigation. And that's where you go in front of a tribunal of some sort and a decision is made. Uh, so in order to, th there is a paragraph in the uh, uh, residential purchase agreement that, that if both parties initial it requires arbitration. And of course we attorneys don't like that because if you don't initial it, you can still arbitrate. It doesn't preclude that. Mm -hmm. But if you do initial it, you're bound to arbitration. So what's the difference between arbitration and litigation? Money? <laughs> Actually, not really. Sometimes. Sometimes, yes, but not really. Uh, an arbitration, uh, there are some arbitrations that you pay $10,000 aside just to open the arbitration. Mm -hmm. And then you still have attorneys you still have discovery, you still have all of the same costs that go into a trial. So the, it's a misconception that an arbitration is less expensive than litigation. What you have in arbitration typically is something that happens faster than litigation or trial. So speed more than money. <laughs> speed more than money. The, uh, the, the flip side of that is an arbitration decision is not appealable. Where litigation, if there's a mistake of fact or a mistake of law that you want to appeal, you can appeal that, and then there's, there are a lot of cases that go to an appellate court or the Supreme Court that are overturned. And so you can't do that with an arbitrator. Arbitrator's decision is final. In arbitration, is it just one arbitrator or is it a panel? It, it can be either. It's what the parties agree to by default. So you can agree to a one-person one panel. You can agree to a three if you want to. Most often it's one. Keep in mind that un, unlike judges, I mean, you, when you go to litigation, 
if you're doing a jury trial, you pay jury fees, uh, which anyone who sat on a jury knows is, is not, not exactly a big payday. But in an arbitration, you're paying the arbitrator's wages, which can sometimes be north of $500 an hour, not just for the arbitration, but for anything the arbitrator engages in at all. So any you know disputes, any discovery issues, any motions, then getting ready for trial, the trial itself, reading papers. And that's how the that's how we get to that price difference. So mm-hmm. even though it's faster and you spend less could spend less time, you're paying for another individual. You get into a panel of three and you've multiplied your costs substantially. And all that over a dishwasher. <laughs> it's not the dishwasher, Don, it's the principal of the dishwasher. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> that was my point. <laughs> And <laughs> it's the principle. The seller should have told me. Right. And and sometimes you've got to follow the advice of the famous Vito Corleone. Hey, it's not, uh, don't take it personal. It's business. <laughs> it's only a stinking dishwasher. <laughs> so, well, and if you, principle can be expensive. Yeah, so we, I, I'm we not, regularly tell people to come in and they, they you get into a cons- discussion with them and they say, well, it's the principle. They cheated me. And, and our response really is how big is your wallet for the principal yeah because that's what it's all about okay I would like to turn it now to this each of you has about a minute Uh, give us your best real estate advice and what you want our listeners to remember most about today's show the biggest real estate advice is no matter what you're doing engage a professional whether it be buying or selling your home whether it be getting an inspection whether it be improving your home whether it be seeking advice what to do after the case, seek a professional who knows. You know, as a shameless plug, a little bit of advantage for us is that we have realtor experience as in addition to being attorneys. We know the transactions in or out. Not all attorneys share that benefit. The same can be said for home inspectors, lenders, realtors. You want to make sure that you're it, – it, it's one of the biggest, if not the biggest, transactions most people will ever engage in. And there might be a few of them during their lifetime as they buy and sell homes. And yet – it needs to be one of, it, they don't always treat it as the biggest, and they need to. Have a professional, take the advice, listen to what's said, do your homework, and be thorough about it. All right. Bob? Well, Greg kind of took the words out of my mouth, but I think the next best thing that I would say is that uh, don't be afraid to engage an attorney when you're in a transaction, even when you're using a realtor. We're not there to foul up the deal. We're there to help explain what's going on. We can analyze the title, uh, preliminary title report. We can analyze the contract and explain what they mean. A real estate agent can tell you what it says, but uh, they're practicing law if they try to tell you what it means and how it can affect you. Mm -hmm. And so uh, attorneys can do that for a relatively inexpensive price, um, gives you some protection up front. It it gives you the cautions that you need and and uh, a, a real estate agent, a, a buyer or seller, and an attorney can all be on the same team and the same page. All right. Well, I want to thank both of you for coming in today and sharing your expertise with us. And I want to thank all our listeners out there for tuning in every Saturday, 9 to 10 on 940 ESPN, to the sports station to get some good um, real estate advice. Thanks, thank Don. you. Thank you, Don. <laughs>